Welcome to the Brutecast, the flagship digital outreach platform of the Krulak Center. Inspired by its namesake, the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity enables an interdisciplinary approach to supporting all students and faculty at Marine Corps University through complex problem solving, fostering an environment that enhances our collective warfighting capability, and facilitating and encouraging novel solutions to current and future warfighting challenges in order to expand the Corps' competitive edge and improve our warfighting effectiveness. The Brutecast is a web series that we've run for almost a year to help connect subject matter experts with Marine Corps University students to help them think about those novel solutions. We're now adapting many of our former webinars to the podcast format to help spread that knowledge even wider. We hope you enjoy this episode and all the ones to follow. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community. My name is Major Ian Brown. I'm the Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. And on behalf of the Marine Corps University, Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So with that, I'm pleased to turn things over to Dr. Brandon Valeriano, the Krulak Center's Bren Chair for Military Innovation, who will introduce our panelists today. Dr. Valeriano, over to you. Great, thank you. Uh, we're excited for today. Uh, we have four preeminent and stellar military scholars who are working in the area of war games. Obviously, war games as a field has exploded recently with uh, former Assistant Secretary uh, Bob Work's uh, recent work, and also through the Commandant's uh, planning guidance. The war games have become even more critical for the education community on top of the strategic and tactical community. So we're going to explore war games as a perspective. We're going to dive into each individual person here. We're going to give each person um, a bit of time to talk about their perspective on the educational or training utility of war games and how they utilize war games in the classroom or for learning exercises. Uh, we'll start with Andrew Reddy. He's a postdoctoral fellow from the University of Berkeley. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, and thank you, Ian, for all of your um, administrative uh, support on the back end here um, and to my fellow panelists. Um, I'm a senior uh, research affiliate at UC Berkeley, as Brandon mentioned. I'm also uh, recently a senior systems analyst at Sandia National Laboratory, um, where I represent their experimental wargaming uh, portfolio um, and come to wargaming through uh, my work on the project nuclear gaming, um, which was funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York uh, between Berkeley, Lawrence Livermore National Lab and Sandia National Lab. Um, with that, um, just to reiterate, all the views presented here are my own. Uh, they do not represent SNL or uh, the U.S. government. Um, so from my perspective, um, kind of based on some of the conversations that we were having about what to present today, there are three clear use cases associated with wargaming. Um, you have the education use case, uh, the training use case, and the analysis use case. Um, and so I think others on the panel are, are far better than, than I at explaining kind of the education and training use cases. Uh, but suffice to say that war games are an incredibly useful tool for teaching core concepts uh, in defense and security studies um, that, you know, previously we were relying on fairly abstract tomes 
uh, to teach our students. Um, but you're heal, you'll hear a lot more about that from, uh, from my fellow panelists. I want to focus um, my, my 10 minutes here on the analysis or analytical uses of wargaming tools. Um, and I kind of see three kind of clear types of questions that uh, they're particularly useful for answering too. Um, the first one, um, you know, if we're interested in questions around how different military capabilities might impact stability or conflict escalation dynamics. Uh, the second, whether particular scenarios um, that are of interest to us, right, whether we can kind of play these scenarios out and see how things uh, might look as we do so. And then third one, how particular geographies uh, might look in a competitive or conflict setting. Um, I say these three uh, types of uh, questions because these questions are often data poor from the perspective of the researcher, right? We don't know before we deploy capabilities how that's going to ch change what, um, you know, our strategic system is going to look like. Uh, similarly, right, we don't know how scenarios are going to play out until they're actually out in the real world, right? Um, and so those are, the, those are the three kind of uh, questions that I think are most relevant uh, from the analytical side. Um, so that's kind of where my work focuses. Um, so, you know, we use uh, war games as a data generating process alongside things like formal models, computer-based models, and survey experiments to try to shed light on questions where we don't have empirical data available to us. Um, of course, you know, analytical wargaming has been around for a very long time, um, all the way back to the German case, U.S. Naval War College uses and whatnot. Um, there are, however, some challenges associated with traditional analytical wargaming, uh, particularly insofar as they have very small uh, ends with regards to how many times they're playing them. Um, if you're playing a one-shot war game with one set of players, that's no guarantee that that's actually what, how things are going to play out in the real world, right? Um, and so we have to be really careful about kind of thinking about the outcomes of a war game as useful in terms of kind of driving some sort of causal inference. Um, in addition to the kind of one-shot play, we often pull from exact from the same samples over and over and over again. Um, so we're not getting variation in the types of strategy sets that we're seeing across different types of scenarios, uh, geographies, or in the utilization of capabilities. Um, and also, we rely uh, quite heavily on white cell designs to move games from one uh, round to the next. And of course, when you do that, you're kind of creating an opportunity for the researcher to actually bias the results and kind of in the process of moving that game uh, forward, right? Um, and so I would say that this, these kind of traditional wargaming frameworks are really good for kind of process-oriented inference, uh, but really bad for outcome-oriented inference uh, because of the reasons that I said before. And when I say process-oriented inference, right, really useful for thinking about, okay, when faced with this particular challenge, this is what is kind of going through our, uh, our players' head, right? These are the conversations that they're having across the board. You know, these are the things that they really want to try to tease out, and these are the things that are getting discussed across the table. Um, so really good for process, but really bad for saying, hey, this is how NC3 um, technology is going to be affected by, um, you know, a cyber attack, right, on the basis of kind of one-shot play. Um, and so what uh, my work with, with uh, my research teams uh, at Berkeley, Sandia, and Lawrence Livermore uh, seek to do is to try to bring some experimental design principles into um, the traditional wargaming toolkit uh, to create environments where we can have repeat play, um, where we have instrumented the game for data collection around a specific research question of interest. 
um, and where we rely entirely on rules-based adjudication. So we're taking that white cell away, right? Which is not to say that the rules do not represent bias, right? They clearly do. It's just that that bias is uniform across the hundreds of games that you're playing inside of the platform, right? Um, and doing this, we capture outcome data, process data, and also communication data between players that can be used for quantitative uh, analysis. Um, again, particularly useful for answering questions where we don't have uh, empirical data to draw from from the real world. Um, so, for example, the Signal project uh, that we recently wrapped up and that, we'll, that I'll be presenting next week at Connections um, examines how uh, and whether different types of nuclear capabilities shape or reshape complex escalation dynamics, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis nuclear use. Um, and so there we, we created a, a wargaming platform um, and we've had over 400 games played on it for analysis involving thousands of players. And that kind of serves as the, as the, the, the base for actually carrying out a social science research study, right? Um, and then validated against a survey experiment. Um, you know, we're particularly keen on this method because it also allows us to, um, you know, assess laboratory effects that previously were kind of in the background with, and we can think about laboratory effects in a number of different ways, right? So how does a war game play differently if it's online versus if it's analog? Um, does it make a difference if the war game uses real country names versus abstracts? Um, does the number of players inside of your war game actually influence the outcomes that we're seeing, right? What's the difference between a two player, a three player, a 10 player game? Um, and then do, does having elite policy elites playing your games, does it matter, right? Can we learn useful and interesting things from the layman playing? Um, and all of these are kind of questions that we've had about war games and their analytical utility for a very long time, but we've lacked the ability to actually meaningfully test them uh, systematically. And so opening up the aperture and actually applying these experimental design principles allows us to start to do that. Uh, so you can imagine in future, um, we can take our signal platform, right? And instead of playing it with three players as is currently designed, playing it out with four, playing it out with five, right? Kind of looking at how things might differ based on, based on that set. Um, and obviously this analytical work should inform the education and training uses of war games as well, right? If we know that you're gonna end up with particular outcomes based on the game design, right? We can think about that as we're thinking about how to design games to maximize learning outcomes um, or various types of training outcomes. Um, and so, you know, I think my team and I are clearly kind of very excited about kind of where this work could go moving forward uh, and kind of how it fits into the broader analytical toolkit that we've kind of developed around formal models, computer-based models and survey experiments um, to try to kind of answer some of these uh, questions of strategic studies that have been ignored for a very long time on the basis of there not being data available. Um, I should also highlight here as well that a lot of the existing literature focuses um, on capabilities and how they impact strategic stability. And that's because capabilities are really kind of easy for us to count. Um, and there's lots of different, you know, data sets that we used to do that from Jane's or um, you know, correlates of war, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, often we kind of lose the behavior, we lose the person inside of that type of analysis. And so war games, I think to me, are a really valuable tool to put the human back inside, uh, back inside that decision-making process and, try, and kind of address some of the weaknesses with existing uh, ways of carrying out this type of research, whether it's, you know, assuming rationality in play uh, with regards to formal models 
or, you know, being worried that, you know, when somebody sits down with a survey experiment for 10 minutes, they may not be internalizing the treatment like you want them to, right? Uh, so we can try to address some of those problems using uh, Wargame as well. Um, so yeah, we're, so we're really excited about the field and where it's going and the work that uh, MCU and a variety of other places are doing to kind of drive the field forward um, and look forward to hearing from, from others in the panel as well about kind of how they're thinking about using Wargaming. Great, thank you. Um, and uh, let me just jump to uh, James uh, Pigeon Fielder next. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Colorado, well, Colorado State University. Yes, uh, very happy to be here. And yes, um, James Fielder, I go by Pigeon, a military call sign from having pet pigeons, one bird I've had for 24 years. So, yes, I um, let's see, what is my path to gaming? Um, then I'll build up to what I'm doing at Colorado State right now. So it actually started way back. When I, I remember lovingly dungeon mastering D&D first edition back in the early 80s, and I've kind of kept up with it. So I had an inkling of how D&D worked at the psychological level as a uh, very young player, which kind of influenced how I got into professional gaming. Back in uh, 1997, when I was a young specialist in the Army, the, uh, for sergeant's time, my leadership said, hey, Fielder, you don't seem to get any stage fright, and you're kind of a pain in the butt. Do you want to build next week's training exercise? And I said, absolutely. And you know what? It went well. It was a lot of fun doing the lesson, going out in the woods, uh, putting together a realistic uh, training exercise, and the feedback was great. Of course, I don't know how many people here are part of military, but once you get some sort of stink on you that you're sort of good at something, it sticks with you. And it stuck with me through my entire career. I went through the Army, building progressive larger games, then I realized, you know, mud for five years is great, but mud for another 20 isn't so much. So I switched to the Air Force. And what you know, I, you know, I helped design uh, exercises starting at Intel school. I uh, went to run the operations shop at Ellsworth Air Force Base where we were responsible for training the B-1 pilots and wizards. Uh, that was actually one of the largest games, actually the largest game I've ever run was way back at Ellsworth, 2004. 5,000 participants. I, ran, I directed the script. I directed all the evaluators, all the inputs. I, I ran the, the red cell, the white cell. Lasted a week. It was the entire wing and also involved first responders from Rapid City, South Dakota. It was about 5,000 participants. So that was a ton of fun, but a lot of work. So then in 2006, it was my second angle of the game design. I was teaching a course, uh, American government at the Air Force Academy. I was, I'll add, I was uh, smart enough to teach her, but way too dumb to have actually attended meetings. So we were talking about social capital, trust, you know, reciprocity, why people, like, through face-to-face -face interaction, work to trust each other and actually work for each other. One of my students, and I can't remember his name, he was a big dude, football player. I feel bad, I can't remember him. I said, uh, Captain Fielder, can you develop social capital online, like on World of Warcraft or EVE Online? or um, Second Life. I was like, starting with, how, do, how many scientific questions start with, huh, that's a good idea. Let me go look that up. Fast forward, I'd written a paper on social capital and democracy in virtual worlds. And now, fast forward to 2020, as far as I know, I am the only political scientist in the world who actually studies politics inside game worlds. Like when people play Dungeons & Dragons or World of Warcraft, how do they develop political societies in those games. I 
recently published a chapter in the Politics of Horror studying Vampire the Masquerade players in Denver. I'm working on two other projects right now, one on Evil Online and another on two role-playing groups, uh, one that just started and one that's been playing together for two years, understanding how they interpret power dynamics depending how long they've played. So it's been a lot of fun. I originally came to Colorado State uh, largely because um, I really like the department. And my wife said, when you retire from the Air Force, you can go anywhere you want, Pigeon, as long as it's Fort Collins, Colorado. So here I am. I'm glad they took me on. And now they, since I have a unique research interest and research program, they said, hey, can we keep you and be more than an adjunct? So I am working on that right now. So yes, retired as a lieutenant colonel and associate professor at the Air Force Academy last year. And I see Mike Fowler on the list. I hope that's not the Mike Fowler at the Air Force Academy. I can watch what I say unless he dug me up. All right, so how does my work then influence how I view educational working? Um, what I found powerful in both designing games and studying games is the power of liminality, or that the games are a ritual space, that when players cross into the space, everything outside the circle or outside the liminal space doesn't exist, and everything they're experiencing inside the game is real to them. So in a well-designed war game or any type of exercise, all the fear they feel, the hunger, the thirst, the anger, the joy, the success, the triumphs, the, when they win the game and they're pumping their fists in the air, that's all real. It actually happens to them, except that it's risk-free. So now they can test hypotheses and strategies in this alternate universe, take the learning out of that universe, and you know, one year later, two years later, five years later, they'll find themselves in a real-life situation where they actually train to that task and say, I remember doing this. And they have the confidence to actually carry out a successful strategy, operation, or tactic. So liminality, you'll also hear it called uh, the magic circle by Johan Huizinga, or synthetic experience by Peter Perla, and then virtual reality by Ed Castronova and Nikki, they would call it presence. The idea that when someone's playing an online game with other people, they actually inject their identity in the game for all intents and purposes. They exist in the game world and not in real life. Now, there's other pathologies that go along with that, but I'll go on that some more. It comes down to that liminality is very, very powerful, especially if you're trying to train someone and you're trying to educate them. So my work has mostly been in education and training games as opposed to analytic work. So, I, almost every class I teach, both the Air Force Academy and now at Colorado State, I always have some sort of war game involved where I can assess the student's uh, knowledge of the material. Almost 100% of my students say that when they play the game, whether it's early in the semester or as a capstone, they learn more about the material by immersing themselves in it than they could ever do in a book it becomes more real to them. Because now in the game, remember the liminal state, they're making decisions that feel real. Like say team A is about to attack team B, they realize, oh, this attack is gonna kill 2,000 citizens of team B. If they weren't playing, it's just a number. In the game, when they're under stress and duress, they feel like they're actually gonna kill 2,000 people. Now, that might seem, again, just talking here, okay, that seems kind of silly, but let me cite an example from our Tom Allen's War Games, great book, just recently published, republished through John Curry's History of War Games Project, originally published in 1987. 
where he interviewed uh, some strategic nuclear deterrence game players at the Pentagon in uh, 1983. And these generals, SESs, colonels, seniors, other senior civilians come to the room to play a week-long game of nuclear deterrence. And I think it's just a game, just a game. We're here to have fun or we're not going to get anything out of it. But once they've crossed again that liminal state, they start playing. They start handling the pieces like the dice and the cards, touching the map. And they start feeling fatigued. Then it starts becoming real to them. Long story short, by the end of the game, when it came time to actually launch a missile against a Soviet target, no one in the game could do it. They felt the actual stress and the emotions of actually launching a nuclear weapon. They felt like they were actually going to kill 50,000 people. And the end quote from that chapter, if I remember correctly, is it's hard to start a war. And they learned that from playing a game. So in, when I designed some sort of educational game, and I've you know, working with both the Air Force Academy and Colorado State throughout my military time, and actually coming on as a Kulak fellow, unresident fellow in the next academic year, I'm thinking in terms of when I put the students in this state, what am I trying to measure? What's important then is the importance of the objective, or in this case, the educational objective. For a class, it would be, I want to make sure they understand these terms or this material. To do that, I try then build mechanics that I assess are going to reach that goal. That leads then into my second concept when it comes to building war games. Now, for someone who's not in the war gaming community, if I say war game, they say, oh, you mean like risk? I'm like, well, no, I have to start. Access and allies? Okay, you're getting closer. Battle for North Africa? Oh, okay, you're getting a little big there. You know, I'd love to have my own copy of it. But they think in terms, either as a novice or maybe a professional, in terms of maybe a standard board war game with chips or miniatures, you know, measuring numbers, uh, various ways to measure capability and morale and whatnot. Um, when I think of designing an educational war game, I think broader than just traditional working mechanics. And I did this the same when I taught the, actually taught the war game course at the Air Force Academy in fall of 2018. Did it? I said we're not just going to look at like a distant plane or advanced squad leader. I'm going to pull out Magic: The Gathering, terraforming Mars, a distant plane, a Shadow Rift, Persian Incursion, The Grizzle, Dungeons and Dragons. We looked at a variety of different types of games. I wanted to understand what are the probabilities of different cards showing up in the deck. What are the probabilities of a different number appearing depending on how many dice you roll. How do you work together in a competitive game or a cooperative game? All these different factors. And they said, ultimately it comes down to when you're building this game to test an objective, start with the objective, work down, and find the mechanics that work for you. As famous war game designer Jim Dunnigan said, keep it simple and plagiarize. And by plagiarize, he meant don't reinvent the wheel. When you're building a game, try to find mechanics that are already proven to work. Um, so, Teaching the Air Force the War Game Design course, they worked with sponsors. Sponsors gave them an objective. They said, well, we're going to pull off the grizzled Persian incursion and um, hassle panic off the, off the shelf, and we're going to use those mechanics to give them that objective. Last year, working with, um, I did a zombie apocalypse game in my comparative authoritarian course, authoritarianism course, and I use mechanics from pandemic. Because they work, they work well in the class. Um, now, 
that's for education. And I've, I've, there's numerous literatures out there that say that games and education work as long as they're done right. Um, but I would also make the argument that, and I'm not, hopefully this kind of dovetails, pardon the pigeon pun with uh, Andrew Reddy's comments, that you'll see some folks say that wargaming is not scientific because you can't generalize the outcome. And I would say, well, I'm not sure about that. Um, when it comes to mixed methods approach or a qualitative approach, I would say that war games are still a powerful part of the scientific toolbox. Because, here's an example. I ran the same game over um, five semesters at the Air Force Academy without making any changes. The students always came up with the same strategies. So I'm saying, what is it about what they're understanding of the material and this game, they're developing the same strategies over time across different students. You know, what sort of hypotheses are they generating? Um, what sort of, like if they play it again, why do they change the strategy? If I get, make a minor alteration, why do they follow the strategy? So I think it's a very, I don't know, from a social psychological perspective, I think it's a very powerful scientific tool for understanding players. Great, thank you. And next, we turn to Damon O'Connell, Senior Learning and Development Consultant at Cognitive Performance Group. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Dr. B. So very quickly, uh, my background, I'm a military historian uh, and designer and facilitator of decision games. This is a, an umbrella term that I use to describe um, decision-making exercises like war games, tactical decision games, decision-forcing cases. Um, and I've been involved in Marine Corps PME for uh, I think over 11 years now, and right now um, my, my primary uh, job is to help lead instructor development workshops for training and education. But I want to, uh, I want to use my, my time here to talk through um, my, my tentative thoughts on creating what I call a, a culture of decisions. And, and what I mean by that is, um, well, let me put it this way. I imagine, I, I, I'm imagining a Marine Corps where Marines of all ranks, billets, MOSs, practice making tough decisions involving complex problems every day, and that they do this through war games along with tactical decision games, decision forcing cases, um, and, and other kinds of decision games in addition to your traditional field exercises, command post exercises, and, and the like. And that the net result of all this would produce an organization of, of critical thinkers who could not only decide, communicate, and act in the fog of war, but also quickly adapt to just about any situation they encountered. Now, why is this important? The answer may seem obvious, but it isn't necessarily so. Uh, so what I'd like to do is take an example from the sports world. I'm sure we have some people here who enjoy watching uh, NFL games. How much gameplay, this is a rhetorical question for you, but how much gameplay does an average NFL game have? Think about that for a second. So you've got your answer. Uh, next, Ian. About 11 minutes. So in 2010, Wall Street Journal um, did uh, a review of lots of NFL games, and they found that you'll find about 100 commercials, on average, 100, 100 commercials in an NFL game, but only about 11 minutes of actual gameplay. How this ties in the, to the Marine Corps is that uh, the, the Marine Corps' ultimate purpose is to fight and win battles, and yet the vast majority of our Marines' time is not spent on preparing for those 11 minutes of action and the tough decisions they entail. So I think a, a culture of decisions would help 
remedy this and do so, I would argue, at a low cost. In several ways, there's never been a better time than now to try to create this culture. Uh, we're, we've, we're seeing a, an explosion of interest in and support and use of decision games. Uh, you, you can point to the Commandant's planning guidance, as, as Dr. B said earlier. Um, we're seeing uh, decision games, specifically war games, introduced to places like Command and Staff College, uh, Marine Corps Command and Staff College. You can see there's an, there's an article there in the middle of the, uh, of the slide describing the college's experiences with war games. Uh, and I think most encouragingly, we're seeing uh, unit leaders in the Fleet Marine Forces, particularly at the company level below, using war games to better prepare their Marines for combat. While this is all encouraging news, I'm very happy to see this. This is great. Um, I think we've been here before in some ways. Uh, Wargaming expert Peter Perla, a name I'm sure all of you are familiar with, has described the rise and decline popularity of, of war games as a sine wave. And I think the Marine Corps is not immune to this phenomenon. Right now, the, the wave is rising, but there's no guarantee things will stay that way. Um, for instance, the Marine Corps' much-anticipated wargaming center uh, in Quantico won't be fully operational until 2025. Uh, the current commandant will be long gone by then, and so too perhaps all the enthusiasm for decision games, war games. So I think, therefore, we need to strike while the iron is hot. Putting this another way, how do we make what you see here, these Marines around a traditional tabletop war game, how do we make this phenomenon expand and endure? Or better yet, how do we make it as accepted, expected, and practiced as physical training? This, I think, is the, the key question. Now, in a few moments, I'm going to offer a three-pronged plan that seeks to answer that question. But before I do, I just want to say that I think the most important thing that any Marine leader could do today, right now, with respect to creating this culture of decisions is to simply allow, encourage, and reward their Marines for taking part or doing decision games, whether it's a war game, a tactical decision game, a decision-forcing case. Fire teams, squads, platoons, companies should be playing war games and doing these other sorts of exercises all the time. Small unit leaders, moreover, should see this activity as important as important as doing PT or going to the field. Think back to our football example. When NFL teams aren't on the field, they're talking through plays, watching tapes of their opponents, and so on, and they see these activities as vital work to winning on game day. Doing decision games should be held in the same light by all Marine leaders. So for small unit leaders out there looking for ideas and where to start, I'd encourage you to look at relatively simple War games like Memoir 44, these two pictures you see here, that's what uh, these Marines are playing. Um, and that costs just $48, and you can get it off of Amazon. Yes, there are lots of other great games out there, but I think as an introductory game, Memoir 40, 44 is not a bad one. You could also leverage lots of digital games. There's Close Combat Marines, which um, is a uh, marine, marinized version of the, the Close Combat series. It's modernized. So the Marine Corps owns that. It shouldn't cost you anything. Um, there are commercial games, StarCraft II, Steel Division II, Wargame uh, War, War Red Dragon. All of these you can get off uh, Steam and, and other places. And I think um, really get Marines excited about gaming. And, and beyond that, tap into the gaming they already do. Um, if, if you walk through any squad bay, 
on a, on a Friday or Saturday afternoon, chances are you're going to find lots of Marines playing various games. So with that plea out of the way, I'll, I'll quickly go through uh, my, my overall plan for how do we create this culture. So I see there being three efforts. Supporting effort one is Marine Corps Recruiting Command, bottom left. Supporting effort two is Training and Education Command, and the main effort would be the Fleet Marine Forces. Now, I know some people are going to, to disagree with me on this, but uh, I, I firmly believe that if you want to create this culture, you, you've got to start at the very beginning, and that's with recruiting. So I see Marine Corps Recruiting Command as the foundation. This is where we set the tone for this culture, and we establish expectations both on the part um, of the Marine Corps and of future Marines. So MICRIC and the larger Marine Corps would benefit from using decision games in order to help attract young men and women who can think, decide, and act, help mentally prepare poolies and candidates uh, for boot camp, OCS, and beyond. Uh, I mentioned these expectations. One expectation is let's set the expectation for all Marines that making tough decisions is part of who Marines are, and they practice that skill every day. And set an expectation as well that as a new Marine, or as I'm go coming into this organization, going through my initial training, I expect to see and take part in decision games everywhere uh, in, in the Marine Corps. So how do we do this? There are lots of places to begin, but I'll, I'll just give you four ideas. The first is that uh, I would start recruiting stations already using decision games, and you could do this through the form of providing additional games, resources, et cetera. Uh, for instance, MICRIC could provide these uh, recruiting stations with print and play copies of war games that they could give to, to their poolies or to people who are interested in, in potentially joining the Marine Corps. Similarly, uh, and I did the math on this not too long ago uh, in an article uh, written on the subject, you could buy two copies of the core game of Memoir 44 for every single Marine recruiting site, whether it's an officer selection officer site, uh, a sub-recruiting station, uh, recruiting station, you could buy two copies for every single one of those sites for less than $66,000. I would also connect recruiters to uh, decision game experts and resources, uh, to the, the sorts of folks who are on this panel with me, uh, to uh, the Georgetown Wargaming University Society, uh, Marine Corps War College, Naval War College to collaborate and support. I would incorporate decision games into recruiter school and require recruiting station COs to use decision games as part of their own internal PME and training programs. Supporting effort two is TCOM. This is where we ingrain the habit of, of using decision games, and TCOM would look to cement and deepen this culture of decisions. They could provide high numbers of reps and sets through various kinds of decision games at all the schools, and I do mean all the schools. I'll get into a little more detail here in, in a second, uh, as well as harness the inherent competitive nature of Marines to promote their decision-making, critical thinking, and adaptability. So first steps for TCOM, I would significantly increase the number of decision games at all entry-level schools and courses. That does include the, the recruit depots, uh, the schools of infantry, OCS, the basic school. Um, I would offer expert-led beginner and advanced workshops on facilitating and developing specific kinds of decision games. For example, a two-week introductory uh, course on TDGs. If you don't think you could do two weeks on, on TDGs alone, just as an introductory course, then I don't think you've uh, you've explored that tool enough. Uh, I'd also support schools and courses already regularly using decision games. So the College of Enlisted Military Education, managed staff we, we mentioned earlier, uh, McLog, McTog, and others. Uh, I'd include tasks 
like conduct decision games into the training and readiness manuals. I think that would be key and it would be a forcing function for people to do these sorts of exercises. I would also work with uh, the Naval ROTC Command and Naval Academy to integrate decision games of all kinds into their programs. I know Sebastian uh, Bay is doing awesome work with the Naval Academy right now with war games. To that, I would add BFCs, TDGs, decision forcing staff rides. Um, and finally, for TCOM, I would create decision game leagues, communities of practice, and even a Marine Corps wargaming team. Not necessarily like an esports team, um, and I can you know flush that out more if anyone's interested in. But uh, think the boxing team or wrestling team or uh, marksmanship teams that exist. So third and finally, we come to the fleet. Uh, this is where everything comes together. Uh, by extensively using decision games, the fleet could provide daily opportunities for Marines to make tough decisions, thereby increasing their combat effectiveness. We could optimize training times. I've found in, in my own experience that you can use these decision games to actually save you time by combining um, various objectives you want to accomplish. Uh, we could improve cohesion and explicit communication, which are both necessary qualities for maneuver warfare. And we can encourage bottom-up innovation, adaptability, and problem-solving across the force, especially among enlisted Marines. And for the fleet, what I would recommend is that the MEPs and divisions would su support units and commands already regularly using decision games that the MEFs and divisions also host regular decision game tournaments and contests. I would encourage the Commandant to update and reissue Marine Corps Order 1500.55, Military Thinking and Decision-Making Exercises, which, is, um, which gives all Marines everywhere uh, permission to do these things and, and even expects them to do them every day. It's, it's still an existing order. I don't think anybody follows it. Um, I would encourage division commanders to mandate that all their units spend at least an hour a day facilitating decision games, that they also mandate a decision games collateral duty uh, for all their commands from the division down to squads, um, and that division commanders encourage their units to create fight clubs or fighting society chapters or similar organizations. These three efforts, MCRIC, TCOM, and the fleet would build upon, reinforce each other. And while my plan needs further fleshing out, um, of course, I'm confident that it's a step in the right direction to this culture of decision that I'm envisioning. I threw a lot at you guys in a short amount of time. If you've got questions, comments, or curses, send them to me at uh, case, uh, caseme09 at gmail.com, and I'll turn it over back to Dr. V. Great, thank you. Uh, it's a great to focus and think a little bit about decision games. Um, so our last panelist is Sebastian Bay, who is an adjunct professor at the University of Georgetown. Uh, so my name is Sebastian Bay. I'm a defense analyst at RAND. I also serve as an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown Center for Security Studies. I'm also the faculty advisor for the Georgetown University Wargaming Society. Um, so I do a wide range of wargaming work uh, spanning the spectrum from analytical to the educational. Uh, but for this discussion, I'll focus on my educational wargaming work at Georgetown, Command of Staff, and soon-to-be U.S. Uh, Naval Academy at Annapolis. It is important to remember there are two general types of educational gaming, um, and lots of different folks on this panel have already talked about them. Um, one is its use as a teaching tool, um, sort of what Damien does with his decision games, the notion that you use a game or decision function uh, exercise to uh, highlight or underscore um, uh, a tactic or case study or decision uh, method, right? 
Um, and on the other side of that spectrum is the teaching of wargaming as a discipline. And in most cases, wargaming is used in the, in the former as a teaching tool to reinforce a teaching topic about military history or military decision-making, command and control, or just you know, how to be an officer or infantry leader. Um, for example, Jim Lacey at MCU uses Polis and Pericles to teach about the Peloponnesian War. That's a very clear-cut case, right? You're using a game to reinforce or underline or highlight something about the Peloponnesian War through the game. Uh, for me, I've reversed the equation. I use the case study to teach how to design a game. Um, so the, the case study is really a means for my students to explore how to design a game from scratch. Um, I will talk about predominantly about my work at Georgetown, mainly because um, Command of Staff uh, Wargaming course uh, is about to kick off this fall, and the U.S. Annapolis Academy and the Associated Naval History Wargaming Lab that I'll be participating in will be kicking off in 2021 in the spring, although we have started to do some work already into the fall. Um, so, and all those courses are really predominantly based off my work at Georgetown. So in my course, Basics of Wargaming, students are divided into roughly two uh, teams of two or three students each, and they select a military conflict case study from a list that I provide uh, that span ancient China and the Three Kingdoms to modern-day Kashmir, um, uh, crisis in the Baltics, and everything sort of in between. And I try to incorporate a wide aperture of not only strategic and operational challenges and tactical problems, but also uh, different strategic perspectives, different uh, agents and uh, participants in terms of not only being a US-centric uh, course. Um, and, and the students have to research the topic, design and develop a game system based on the combat model they have researched and developed. And by the end of the semester, they execute their original educational war game for a group of defense and wargaming professionals who serve as playtesters and participants and sort of provide feedback before they have to submit their final products uh, at the end of the finals period, uh, which are essentially, one, um, a complete uh, playable game, two, um, a designer's journal essentially that provides annotated research and uh, logic and justifications for all their choices, and the third part element is their rule book, uh, which allows anyone to pick up their game and play it. Fundamentally, this, the course is about students learning how to research a problem, translate that uh, dynamic uh, and multifaceted combat model for, uh, which they use their research to produce and, and translate that into a dynamic educational game system. Um, and that sounds, and it sounds easy, but it's really, really difficult. Um, the course is not easy and it's all about balancing analytical and research rigor that you put into your game and accessibility and educational value uh, because you know, most uh, classrooms only have two and a half, three hours to use a game. Um, and even commands, it's not like many times in military commands have eight hours or two days to put out for, to use for a training exercise or training war game. Um, so those are constraints that my students keep in mind. The, core, uh, the course at its core is about producing the next generation of war gamers and designers. And in order to do that, the course emphasizes experiential learning uh, as in all things war game, is to learn by doing. This ranges from readings to videos to playing other professional and commercial games. And the Georgetown University Wargaming Society, affectionately called Goose, uh, which I help lead as a faculty advisor, is really an extension of the course. It, it serves as a venue where students can continue to engage with the wider wargaming community, both professional and commercial, and to continue to hone and learn new wargaming skills. 
the benefit of Goose is really that it allows us to engage and collaborate with a wide range of wargaming and PME institutions, including the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, Army uh, War College, Naval War College, and you know, CGSSC over at Leavenworth, uh, just to name a few. Uh, for instance, this past January, my students brought their original war games fall, from fall 2019 to the Krulak Center, and the faculty and staff who have been uh, so good and uh, uh, gracious to us to host us served as players. Um, and let me tell you, seeing majors and uh, 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 people with PhDs and doctorates engage with young uh, wargamers and graduate students over a wargame is a special sight to behold and really makes everything worth it. Um, and then I'll hand it over to the questions. Great, thank you. Uh, I see we have a bunch of questions in the chat. Uh, I'm going to go to that in a few minutes. Uh, let me dive into a few of the questions I have for the panelists. Um, uh, for the panelists, uh, war games have become an integral part of the conversation in the defense community. What is one misperception or challenge that you would like to change about the enterprise? Is there something you want to raise about people's assumptions about war games? And I can I can decide to start if you like. Um, I, I think the one that I would go with is the war gaming can't be a science. Um, and it can only be an art. Uh, I think it can be both, and I think it needs to be both uh, to move the field forward. Uh, I'll be happy to go. Um, I think I think one challenge I see is that wargaming tends to be the the uh, the province of of officers and and particularly higher grade officers, field grade officers, right? So command and staff college is seeing uh, the integration of of war games into their curriculum, which is wonderful. Um, but this is not this is not something that I think is being pushed down to enlisted Marines uh, the way it, it ought to be. Um, when you think of strategic corporal concept, when you think of the direction the Marine Corps is heading, we're going to have a lot of, of young Marines, young leaders, enlisted leaders, having to make decisions on their own, far away from um, their company commander, their battalion commander. Um, Com might likely be degraded. So those, those folks need to be able to make decisions. And I think war games are an excellent way to to uh, engender um, critical thinking, adaptability, these other things we're, we're talking about. So that's the challenge: is how do we how do we get this to, to all Marines, um, including the enlisted? Uh, so this is Sebastian. Uh, I'll jump on Damien's uh, point, and this is like a soapbox issue for me as a former enlisted guy: is that uh, war gaming should not be the sole domain of of officers and especially senior officers. It should really be all the way throughout the rank structure at different ways and different ways to use it. Um, so that's one point. Um, and to elaborate on that is also there one big conception is that wargaming is hard to do to incorporate into the classroom. And that is sort of true and sort of wrong, right? In the sense that there's so many organizations and so many people willing to help instructors and commands uh, execute wargaming for training and PME that they just really need to ask like ask myself or anyone on this panel who who's willing to do it, right? Uh, for instance, um, you know, Colonel Day down at Morpho Res, he asked, we met during a, a, a course at the Krulak Center that they, they were helping, we ran Frederick for him, and he asked, hey, can you help me run Wargaming for my, uh, my, my reservists? And I, I said, absolutely. Um, and so we've gone through this whole process of working together to support uh, Wargaming for in the reserves. So really the idea is like there's so many resources from pre-made games, from matrix games to decision games that Damien talks about, to Assassin's Maze at McWill, 
to close uh, combat Marines. There's so many ways to use Wargaming, and you really just need to tap into that community and really leverage it. Um, and we're more than happy to help. And I think that's a big misconception that I always want to fix. Great. Do you have any thoughts? Yes. When someone says, but it's just a game. Like we're playing, we're children. It's only children play games. And I would look at them and say, it is not just a game. How many of you can't remember a conversation you had 30 minutes ago, but can remember gameplay from 30 years ago? Like in a moment where you actually got to practice personal agency, narrative, and heroism in a game, it sticks with you. I would also look at the someone who says it's just a game, and I would say, well, do you? After this, are you going to go play basketball for PT today, baseball? Do you like watching sports? Now, this might get a little heady for them, but I would say, you know, Hanno Zingo, famous game theorist and uh, historian, said, people in the tennis court are synonymous, i.e., the types of things you learn in a ritual environment are the same whether you go to church, whether you cross into a, the symbols of a business environment, or you play a game. Games are very powerful motivators. Great, thanks. Let me ask, um, do war games need to be realistic and decision-making games? I'll take that uh, first question is, it depends on what you want the decision game of war game to do. Uh, for instance, um, I was just having a conversation with a bunch of uh, war gamers at the Naval War Cost today about adapting one of the games for midshipmen down at the academy, right? Um, for my purposes for the midshipmen, I really just want them to understand the different capabilities and really how carriers and cruisers and frigates really work beyond their uh, memorization of what is on a cruiser or a frigate or how many people or how many sailors and marines are on the complement, right? Um, so, but at the same time, for their knowledge set, they're not seeped into doctrine and warfighting yet. So for, for that, the rigor can be a little looser uh, in those contexts is because I'm trying to get, uh, drive at a different level of understanding. But as, as you get higher in terms of uh, your audience expertise, you're also now required to provide the same level of rigor they expect in their decision making, right? So it really depends on what level of war you're looking at, what level of decision making you're looking at. So if you're looking at strategic decision making, you don't care about uh, how a tank interacts with another, you know, a T-14 Russian tank, that does not matter, right? You're looking at a much higher level. So it really depends on what level of realism and uh, you're looking at. But as a rule of thumb, I would say a game and its game model that the engine that lies underneath of it needs to have a realistic representation dynamic of whatever decision-making construct you're trying to do, either at the strategic, operational, or tactical level. Otherwise, you know what I mean, what's the point? You're just making a fantasy. Uh, that's my two bits. Anyone else? Yeah, I think, I think Seb's exactly right. Um, it, it does depend. I mean, just taking a, but, but what I do want to highlight is that there, at least in our strategic uh, games and kind of beta testing them out, occasionally it can be clear that having a realistic game that kind of maps onto real world realities can have pernicious consequences for actually trying to do analysis on it, right? So as soon as we say, hey, this is the red team, right, and you're American playing the red team, they're going to start caricaturing what they think a particular country is going to do, 
right? And that's no good either, all right? So there's going to be situations where realism is important and useful, and there's going to be other situations where abstraction is also really important and useful. Great. So a real social science answer? I'd just like to add, um, Sebastian, I, I think you, you uh, left off with the word, you know, just, just doing fantasy. Um, I actually think you could use something like Dungeons and Dragons to teach Marines all sorts of things. I, I recently got into that because of the pandemic with some of my roommates. And on the back of the character sheet, I'm taking notes and drawing parallels between things that I saw the captains at the basic school trying to teach teach their lieutenants uh, through a TDG or through a field exercise and what's happening uh, as the game is unfolding. And I saw that uh, as we played these games, there was cohesion building. Uh, people had to practice clear communication, sequencing of events, combined arms, tactics in general, uh, dealing with complex things, the role of luck in, in, in chance and their actions, balancing the strengths and weaknesses of various characters. Now, it is fantasy. But um, if, if the idea, again, if, if you've got this educational goal of I want, I want the Marine to understand conceptually what combined terms looks like, um, I think you can do that through a fantasy game like D&D. Okay. Uh, well, I'll Dave. respond to that. Um, so I have no problem with fantasy games. Um, so I was addressing more in the sense of does your game engine produce realistic results, right? And that can be applied to... Um, D&D, like, for example, when people ask me what is a great coin game by insurgency and, like, asymmetrical, uh, asymmetrical like, capabilities, I'd tell them to go play Root, which is a commercial game about woodland creatures fighting in, in, in the forest, right? And let me tell you, Marquis the Cat is the best player. But anyway, but that game has such fantastic, dynamic ways of understanding asymmetrical uh, sort of, like, conflict and competition, you know what I mean? Uh, and that, and you know what I mean? The game scenario is fanciful, right? But like I said, like the engine produces real choices and dilemmas and consequences that the player really understands and finds them to be realistic and useful, right? Um, you know I mean, for example, like Candyland is worthless, right? It's essentially an automated game, right? That requires no decision-making. When, when we talk about realism, we not only have to think about realism of like tanks and things that are, are, are real objects, but realism in the sense of realism in terms of decisions and consequences, because that's the part that most players have the most problem with games, right? They'll say, hey, this effect or this consequence is not realistic, whether that's a tank round or if it's a dice roll or whatever. The real idea is like, do you pair consequences and their decisions uh, realistically and believably, uh, like, and are they believable? And that's really why I want to focus on. It's not so much about whether about the theme or the story of a game is fanciful or not, is really the question of, is the engine realistic? Uh, that's my two bits. Okay, great. I guess I'm just be adding a little bit to what other folks have already said, but putting my own opinion and feather spin on it. So I'm thinking of uh, realism in two levels, realism versus simplicity in scenario or realism versus simplicity in mechanics. When it comes to scenario, uh, what matters to me is that there are the uh, players are playing for realistic objectives. So I love doing zombie apocalypse games. I've done an international relations theory course. I've done it in a uh, comparative authoritarianism course. So, I mean, what are the odds of a zombie apocalypse could actually happen? Well, <laughs> given the current circumstances, I don't know. But the idea was they still had to practice to the objectives. So they learned to apply the terms realistically in a fantastic setting. 
Now, realism versus simplicity of mechanics. So you noticed during my opening, I joked about a game called Battle for North Africa. Look it up. It is a extraordinarily detailed war game. And it takes like a thousand hours to play. And I don't know that anyone's ever actually successfully played the game, including the creator. It goes into just ridiculous levels of detail. And for some people, they enjoy that thing. But going again, back to Jim Dunningham, keep it simple and plagiarize. What are you really learning by doing that? However, I will add, I did see uh, James Laporta's comment of you know, simplicity, maybe not teaching the right things. So I'd say the objective of the game might be, at a tactical level, we need to practice down to the really detailed granular level. Like you're having weapons malfunctions. How do you correct that? You have to you know, move this distance across this type of terrain. terrain. How do you do that? Uh, makes me think of a, a recent series of, of uh, PC games, and I can't remember the title of it, where the idea is you're holding a gun, and it's, the gun itself has high levels of detail. Like you have to clear it, you have to properly load it, and it's very, very difficult to use, but the idea is the objective is to learn, accurately learn to use a firearm in a virtual environment. If someone that is familiar with that, you can post in the comments. So I would say even then, I would try to balance at the mechanics level, try to keep it as, what did Einstein say? Keep it as simple as possible, but no simpler. Great, thanks. Uh, let me combine in two questions here from the chat. I'm gonna start going through the chat and calling on people if I need to. How much can a war game be enhanced by AR, VR augmentation? And ask, can small unit leaders utilize war games um, and the benefits of presence of AR, VR to train service members on individual a collective level training and readiness tasks. So do you guys have an opinion about AR, VR, war games and training and decisions? I think they are absolutely, absolutely fantastic settings. Um, however, I would need someone to give me the money and the personnel to build something like that. That's what it comes down to. I'm, I'm a fan of like pen and paper games for two reasons. One, because it's the tactile, uh, experience or bring players in, but just the act of touching the materials puts them in that liminal state. But also, I don't even know, you know, I love studying games. Well, how do you fund these sort of things? Do you get the money to build a AR, VR system? So, hey, but remember my name if you're looking to spend money on AR, VR systems. I think that's a common refrain. Anyone else have any opinions uh, about AR? I'll just add, you know, my, my depth of knowledge on AR, VR as it applies to this topic is pretty, it's pretty low, but um, shallow. But you know, one thing I've always been interested in seeing is picture your traditional staff ride. You go to Gettysburg, you go to Chancellorsville, and, the, and, the, and the, the approach to staff rides that I prefer is not to do a retrospective, here's what happened, and this is where Lee stood, and that's where uh, Mead was, or whatever it is, but you know, putting people in the role of a decision maker uh, and, and face them with the problem and, and kind of put them in that same sort of situation with the same degree of limited uh, the, the limited uh, information that, as far as we can tell, is available to that person. But if you could add some sort of headset, or, you know, a, a VR headset that would allow um, the, the students to see, well, hey, your unit is over there, or your, this unit is taking fire, or you're seeing a uh, you know, charge across this field. I think that would that would really 
increase the, the value and the immersiveness of, of the experience for, for the students. I, I think uh, Colonel Tim Barrick uh, over at uh, the War, Marine Corps Warfighting Lab has, has done some research into that. I, I haven't looked at it in depth, but I think that'd be a really neat application. Um, the first question I have, uh, I guess, for all, all panelists is, uh, how do we prevent uh, sort of a metagaming aspect in professional war gaming? And uh, by that, I mean sort of the players kind of playing beyond the game or thinking, obviously, turning the map around is one thing, but uh, playing to the advantage of the specific rules in the game for the purpose uh, solely of victory, say, or uh, going beyond the purpose of the game. Uh, do we do that systematically as a function of game design, or is it is it only by some kind of social contract? And if you have any other thoughts on this issue, whether or not it's a problem uh, or uh, something that's that's mitigated some other way, I'd love to hear it. Thanks. Okay, panel, do you have any responses? So I will address that on two points. One is a design point in the sense that if you're if there is some kind of loophole or mechanic that your players are exploiting, that means that there's a design flaw that either you missed or, you know, I mean, they have found a nuance to your system that you need to correct. Uh, and that can be corrected all the time with like, um, like house rules or just adjusting the rules or, or sending an updated rule. Like commercial games, you do it all the time. Um, there are times even when I run games, I'm like, oh, shoot my students have discovered a loophole in this game mechanic, or there's a certain sequence of events that happen that they have taken advantage of creating this unexpected sort of like black swan thing in my game um, that sort of throws everything out of a loop. Then you just had to fix the design problem. And that's, you know I mean, a de a design for a game is always continuous and never ending, right? Um, and that's regardless of uh, it's been out into the wilderness. The second point in terms of meta influences on top of the game, in terms of players' behavior, is really an organizational culture thing about asking, your, asking yourself, what is the context of this game is being played? And what are the organizational prerogatives, constraints, and pressures that, you, uh, that the players are in? Like for instance, if you're saying, hey, player, we're gonna grade you on how good you are at this game in terms of your promotions or whatever, now you're introducing a, a, a a meta influence into the game that may taint the result of the game or may actually steer your the purpose of education and training uh, and dampen those kind of like innovative thinkers that you really want, right? Um, so it's really about uh, what you want and what kind of context in which these games are being played, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the, the thing that I'd add is that, you know, I think for, for us as designers, getting to grips with the laboratory effects of the designs is something that we previously haven't really done. You know, if we're only playing games five or six times and then putting them on the, on the shelf, right, getting a sense of how they're actually manipulating the outcome is not something that we're able to kind of do backwards analysis-wise. So I think trying to get, you know, wise to what the laboratory effects are across the different designs is, is something that we need to do to try to stop this kind of metagaming that you're, you're, you're talking about. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Anyone else in the panel? Yeah, from an educational gaming uh, standpoint, um, this aligns actually with a comment that Sebastian made in that I, I'm adamantly against grading in-game performance. So I tell the students that I want you to take risks and think big. So you want, whether or not you win or lose, you're not going to fail this assignment. What I am going to grade you on is your after-action report or your written essay. Like, 
reflecting on what you learn about the game, what strategies you use. And I've found that method largely discourages them from trying to short circuit the game. Like they, then they play that face value, they play it fairly, and that the pot washes or after action reports I get back are based on a, a fair play, non-spoil sport play of the game. A few things I have thought of though, I mostly have uh, played, no, I'll have a chance to play a game once in class. So I don't know, like the second time they play it, do they develop strategies that use loopholes? I haven't found that out. Uh, what I have found though is um, when I talk, remember the plagiarizing mechanics? Uh, if you're trying to avoid loopholes, use mechanics that you know from another game that has been proven. So they know that the, those designers have already determined that uh, the balance issues in these mechanics have been largely closed. The survey had to undercover, like if you're linking mechanics together from several different games, you then have to work at those creases and fulcrum points, but those should largely work well together. That's a pretty interesting question that I think we might want to unpack a little, and I think Andrew Reddy might have some perspectives on this. Um, she's asking about transcripts of discussions during war game activities. This is something I've found in our research about war games that um, it's something we underestimated, that the in-team conversations and the in-team dynamics are just as important as the outcomes and decisions made in war games. Um, so can the panelists talk a little bit about that, the dynamics of team play, the dynamics of conversations, how this works out in terms of developing more games and getting out there. I mean, I can take that one first if you'd like. I mean, I think for me, that's that's exactly right. You know, that 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 kind of data is exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about process-oriented data that you're able to get out of kind of the traditional seminar-based war game designs, uh, particularly that we use to look at. Um, you know, strategic questions. Um, and I think when you're only playing games once, twice, three times, that's about the only kind of data that I think really we should be using for inference. Um, but the one of the things that, you know, I mean, I guess mea culpa on, on my work so far, um, you know, I'm focused very much on the kind of 1v1v1 type war games, right, where I'm trying to understand how an individual person, you know, when faced with a strategic conundrum acts, right? Um, you know, probabilistically across large numbers of plays. Um, but it's absolutely the case, you know, and we, we played this out in beta testing. When you put people inside of teams and you're adding that dynamic into the decision-making process, it changes a lot, right? And insofar as, you know, our national security policy decisions are made in teams, it's really important that we get to grips with that uh, team-based process. And I think compared to survey experiments or formal modeling approaches or computer-based modeling approaches, this is where I think Wargaming has this massive opportunity to play a big role in kind of moving that research forward because we can create the conditions under which that team-based decision-making can take place, right? We can capture all that data for text analysis, for, you know, just using it as a case study qualitatively, right? All of these kind of good things that we can do with it, right? And then, and then kind of use that to actually interrogate, uh, interrogate the decision-making process. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan. I think, we kind of still have some work to do to get there. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. Okay, we got a great question here. Basically he's saying there's virtually no war gaming going on in the Canadian Army. Um, I want to look into Rex uh, Barnum, I think you say his last name, Bynum. Um, fairly active in Canada and McGill for the war gaming perspective. Um, but he's asking, uh, how does one get into war gaming and spreading it without any sort of war gaming culture? 
how do you develop this? Uh, how do you build this out in an organization that may not have it? I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that. Um, I think is, uh, you know, first step is there are people wargaming, you just may not know it, right? I think if, um, if, if you search long enough, you'll find that there are other, whether it be small unit leaders or larger unit leaders, people probably are employing it, but it's, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So connect, try to find people. There, there are different ways to do that. Um, I, I think, though, that the, probably the, the best step you can take is start, start where you are. Start with your, you know, your slice of the pie. Um, start with your unit, your organization. Um, if you see that it's starting to take on. So let's say you're a company commander in a battalion and you buy a set, you and the, uh, you and the lieutenants buy a set of Memoir 44 or whatever it is. Um, you start playing this, you run a tournament. The other companies uh, in the battalion are kind of looking, looking across the field, seeing, you know, see, or across the, the quad, looking what you're doing, challenge them. Um, you know, create, you know, again, harness, harness, I think, the, the, um, the qualities of competition that, that are often present in military organizations. Um, I think this is, this is something that uh, 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines under Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Mines did very well. Um, Colonel Mines had created something called the uh, Decision Room, and the outgrowth of that was the Tactical Decision Kits, but um, they had that culture of decisions. And uh, Marcus would challenge other battalions in the um, in the regiment to, to various, I think, uh, contests. So that's that's another way to go about it. Uh, but I think first things first is just start where you are. Anyone else? I actually ran into this after. Let's see, it started with a, I gave a talk at Moore's back in March, and shortly after my talk, I received emails from a. Um, Canadian Foreign Service Officer and a member, like a Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces, who said the same thing. I said, we like the presentation the Working Force is doing, but up here in Canada, it's being done piecemeal and there's no really unified effort to do so. And then I also referred them to Dr. Brynan at McGill. Um, coincidentally then, about uh, two weeks ago, I was in a war game conference where I watched a presentation by a a Canadian Army major who was talked about building a war game inside of the freeware vessel engine. And um, the comments that that conversation were into, like, wow, it's so great that the Canadian Armed Forces can use vessel, whereas here it's so difficult to get it on networks, even though, as far as I'm um, aware, it is a proven government network. But um, I guess, long story short, if you uh, drop me a line, I'll drop my email in a second. I might be able to put you in touch with these folks who I was in contact with regarding these uh, various efforts in the Canadian Armed Forces and Foreign Service. Yeah, that's great. And I think you can find all the panelists quite easily on Twitter, or you can reach out to us for contacts if you need that. I was asking about uh, civilization, not realistic, but there's an important thing that you can teach in terms of planning and constraints and programming. Um, and I also add into that discussion uh, the game diplomacy. Um, is there value, as the panel sees it, from playing these off-the-shelf, very popular, very uh, well-known um, game platforms, or would you steer them towards uh, 
sort of other sorts of game outlets? So I will tackle this one first because this is an issue near and dear to my heart. Um, so there is division in the wargaming community professionally whether commercial games have any use or utility. Uh, for, from the analytical crowd, most people see commercial games as largely worthless, mainly because they're right in the sense that most times when a sponsor from DOD or somewhere is asking you to solve a problem, there's rarely, if ever, a commercial game that you can pull off the shelf and be like, huzzah, you have the solution, right? Um, but from an educational point of view, I think uh, commercial games are often 90% of the solution. Um, I say this because sort of linking this to the question previously is I always tell people when they're trying to set up wargaming at their command or the university or in their classroom is to crawl, walk, run, right? Don't bust out, uh, I mean, uh, Next War by GMT on the first time and drop it on your class because that's an easy way to make everyone's eyes glaze over and never do that ever again, right? Is that I always, even in my own course, when I am teaching my students how to design courses, I expose them to games that I classify as like gateway games, right? Games that are easy to understand and play and sort of a, have that addictive, immersive quality, right? Uh, Diplomacy, Race to the Rhine, Frederick is a great game. That you know, it's, it's the game I taught to the Krulak uh, folks about how to get immersed into the Seven Years' War, right? Um, and of course, uh, I use, and even for my course, I use uh, Game of Thrones Risk. And I modify the rules slightly to make it more balanced and more competitive. But that game is often the most popular game in my course, um, even throughout the semester. And if you use commercial games properly, you can, they can have so much value. Um, and there are lots of great games that are, um, have lots of rigor and dynamics that you want. Like um, I was just talking yesterday about uh, Supply Lines of the American Revolution by Hollandsfield, which is a great logistical game about the American Revolution. I mean. Um, the coin series game is great if you're really looking at uh, counterinsurgency dynamics and prerogatives, right? So, and you can modify these games to suit your own purposes. You can set them up earlier, or um, I know people who use Triumph and Tragedy, which is a GMT or two game, and they accelerate the scenario. So they start off at a certain year, so they don't have to go through a lot of the um, sort of the slower turns and get jumped right into the part that is applicable to their class. So. Commercial games like Civilization and other uh, tabletop games have tremendous value if you know how to leverage them in the proper way. Um, over. Great, I love that comment. Uh, you know, crawl, walk, run. Takes a while to build up. I wouldn't recommend anyone jump straight into command and start from there. Hi, thanks. Uh, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate being included and the opportunity to ask this question. Um, I, I'm trying to get the sense of whether the gaming community uh, is not using realism because it hasn't been able to. When I say realism, I mean really granular uh, reality in terms at least of platforms that then have to, of course, subsequently be made interactive. The reason I'm asking is, first, I'm, in, I'm somewhat involved in this a little bit, but I'm not a technical expert. Um, but digital twins are coming. Uh, Will Roper is talking about digital twins in the Air Force. Uh, digital twins in the Navy are being uh, developed and constructed now. The process is actually, I don't want to say quite trivial, but it's tried and true now. And you are going to be able to have a digital twin 
of any component that you want. And that, that will include things like acoustics and geography, meteorology, and so on. So if you could have absolute fidelity in terms of the, 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 what the state of the art has become, uh, no matter what level of the game you were playing, would you want that? Could you use that? Uh, can you perceive? Can you conceive that that might be uh, not only useful but perhaps a step up in what's possible? Okay, panel, you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, so, again, on personal level, I like the in-person paper experience. Um, but the more realistic it gets, the more difficult it is on that way. So that model makes me think of like modifying like the Arma 3 engine or taking some sort of commercial off-the-shelf uh, game product that goes into high levels of detail, like down to ballistics, uh, clearing weapons, uh, movement, effects of terrain, and so on. Um, and I've, I've seen some companies, I don't know if I can talk about them, I've seen some companies trying to work on high-level granular detail models where, say, you launch X weapon using the system, it accounts for everything. It accounts for like, the effects of weather on the, the ballistics of the weapon, uh, radar systems, uh, you name it. And I guess you could say the advantage there is that will collect a level of data that I have no hopes of ever capturing. You know, and then paper game. You, know, you record all the movement, you record everything. Um, I see that the two disadvantages, uh, one I think I will know how to overcome it, the other I'm not so sure how. The first advantage or disadvantage is that it black boxes everything. Unless someone fully understands the game itself, like the players have to know at face value that everything that happens in this digital twin system accurately reflects reality. We may be a little bit deviant, but if, if we unpack the math under it, yes, this is how this, this weapon or this personnel will behave in real life or act in real life or perform in real life. Um, I'd say the solution for that is just make sure that the underlying uh, mathematics or the digital transcript, if you will, is just made freely available for analysis. And I, I think it ties into a comment earlier about someone talking about the importance of the transcript. The other uh, disadvantage is um, I'm still of the, maybe I'm a pessimist here, but I'm still of an opinion that if, even in an AI system, as soon as a human player can figure out how to game that AI, talk about metagaming, the game's over. They've short-circuited. So you'd have to know then that the digital twin will always be able to think um, and react in a different way than the player expects. I would say the solution to that then is even with a digital twin, you'd have some, have some sort of human in the loop who could step in and make some sort of adjustment to account for the mitigating aspect. So we'll wrap up and end on the half hour. Um, let me ask one final question to the panel. If anyone wants to follow up on war games, if anyone wants to learn more about war games, if anyone wants to look you up, what sorts of resources and where should they look? Uh, I believe uh, Pigeon mentioned Moors. You might want to explain more about Moors. You might want to talk about uh, what presentations you're going to make at Connections next week. Um, but it's 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 on you guys to promote yourselves and promote the board game community. So, uh, 
Andrew's on my screen, so we'll start with Andrew. Perfect. Yes. So um, I'll, I'll be there in, in the connections next week. Um, and if there's actually a few other members of my team from Sandy as well. Uh, Kieran Lakaraju, uh, John Wetzel, um, and Josh Lutchford, we're all on the schedule. Um, so I'll actually be sharing some of the results from um, the signal game that I mentioned in, in, in the beginning of the presentation. Um, I think from kind of my part of the field that uh, both Dr. Valeriano and I are in, you know, there's a few scholars doing some really interesting work incorporating war games into social science. Um, so, you know, beyond Brandon and myself, there's Stacey Pettyjohn, Ellie Bartels, Reed Polly, Jacqueline Schneider. Um, there's kind of a whole group of us, and we we tend to present at things like the American Political Science Association Conference and the International Studies Association Conference. Um, but all of us are also fairly active on Twitter as well, so so you can find us there. Um, but but yeah, an increasing number of folks kind of looking at their the uses of this method in scholarship too. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Thank you. Um, and uh, Ben Jensen and I have been building out a project for a while, uh, exploring escalation in cyber um, security. And the reason we've been using war games, obviously, is because um, we don't have a lot of data on decision-making processes on the road to escalation. I think a lot of people are making assumptions and guessing, and using war games or simulations is a way to get beyond that. It's a way to get the human back into the loop, as uh, I believe Andrew said already. Uh, James, uh, Pigeon? So, um, yes, actually, if you, uh, if you uh, email me at that email address I put in, Federal State, I actually have a, I, I prepared a course for faculty at CSU in January on how to basically build a classroom game. And it's basically a five page list of resources, software, bibliography, uh, checklists on how to build a classroom game. I'll just gladly just send it to you. I'm also going to mention it during my talk at Connections next week. I'd say if I had to pick one big daddy rabbit, um, go to uh, PacSims. I'll write the name of it. I think it's Paxims at WordPress.com. After I make my comments, I'll post it. I'll post it in the text. I think it's actually Rex Brynan who runs it. And it's basically the be all end all center of the universe for anything working. He tracks the industry, he tracks all the conferences, all the papers that are coming out. Like if you want to know what's going on, add that to your daily read. Great, thank you. Uh, Damon? Yeah, I would just add, um, not so much for, well, I guess, no, I'll, I'll say this for wargaming materials as far as articles and other things, um, as well as particularly tactical decision games, decision boards and cases. Um, if you're interested in, in getting access to uh, my Dropbox, I've got lots of, lots of resources on, uh, on those things. So happy to, uh, happy to share that. I also uh, host a podcast called Controversy and Clarity and um, it's currently focused very much on, on um, the Marine Corps and having Marine guests, but we touch quite a bit on uh, war games and decision games in general. Uh, so you can, you can check that out. It's on Spotify, iTunes. We've had people like Tony Zinni, uh, Brendan McBreen, TX Hannis, uh, and, and some other folks who share their perspectives on, on decision games, how they've used them, benefits, challenges, pitfalls, all of those sorts of things. Um, I'd also encourage you to check out, um, and we can put you in touch with them, but uh, I think it's uh, Jim Starrett. Tell me if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, any of my, my co-panelists, Jim Starrett. He's a, uh, a professor, I think, at the Army's Command and, Command and General Staff College. He's got um, basically like a weekly 
uh, Wargaming Digest, where it's, it's an emailing list, and you can get on there, and he, he collates all this really great, interesting stuff, articles, um, conference announcements, all sorts of different things um, that you, you can uh, you can get on that list, and uh, I found it to be incredibly helpful. So if you're interested in that, we can get in touch with uh, Dr. Starrett and pitch on the list. Great, thank you. And Sebastian, can round us off. Um, so I am found on Twitter at Sebastian Bay. Uh, I wasn't very creative when I made it. Um, and I also highly recommend for those who are interested in wargaming, especially getting involved at the university level, uh, to be involved with the Georgetown University Wargaming Society. Our website is uh, www.guwargaming.org. On the website, more importantly, uh, we have a link to our Google Drive, which has links to resources like uh, the decision games that Damien gave us, TDGs, articles, articles about analytical and educational wargaming, uh, a list of our um, games that we lend out to people in the NCR. Uh, we have over 120 uh, board games that we uh, lend out to people. Um, and, more, and most importantly, we have uh, the schedule for our webinars. So we do weekly webinars for about two hours, usually on a Monday or Tuesday evening around 6 to 8 p.m. And we have speakers from both the commercial and the professional realm. Like um, we have Volker Ruhunki, who is the designer behind GMT's famous coin game, uh, talking about how to uh, incorporate and use cards in war game design. Uh, we have Ed McGrady from CNAS talking about pandemic war gaming and, and health crises. Uh, in September. We have Mitch Reed, who's a senior war gamer, uh, who leads the Title 10 game for the U.S. Air Force, talking about his work at the, Air, uh, at the Pentagon, at the Air Force, at the war gaming level in October. So we have lots of really cool speakers, and uh, it's a great way for the students and the wider war gaming community to engage. And most importantly, it's free. Um, it's open to non-GU students, um, and, it, and they're recorded on our YouTube page. So all that can be found on our website. Great, thank you. And uh, I hope it's clear to everyone that uh, the war game community, the simulation community, is quite diverse and it's quite vibrant. So hopefully uh, we were able to highlight some of the key players of this new community, and hopefully you can dive in and explore more on your own. We might have individuals from these uh, from this panel speak more in the future, um, but right now I'm going to toss it back to Major Brown. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Valeriano. So first off, my um, thanks to all the panelists for uh, coming together. Um, this is our first attempt at doing it, and I think we could not have asked for a more fantastic result. I think the uh, the questions were great from the audience, and you've really laid out the different flavors and uses of wargaming in a way that'll be very helpful to our community. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. We hope you enjoyed this newly adapted episode of the Brewcast. You can view older episodes with their full video content on the Krulak Center YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about our other activities. And see our full range of written and media content on The Landing, Marine Corps University's digital PME portal. Check out the show notes for links to all of these, and we'll see you for the next episode.